God, we commit this time to you as we look to your word. We pray that you would be at work powerfully in our midst by your spirit to change us, to show us your glory, to fit us for the mission beyond these walls. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here at Zionsville Fellowship, we often start the year with a sermon series on spiritual renewal. So we as Christians believe that God is taking broken, twisted people like us and making them new, restoring us. So to become a Christian means to be so caught up in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that not only are your sins forgiven, but the death and resurrection of Jesus actually begins to liberate you from the suffocating grip of sin itself. So this year, we're going to think about spiritual renewal from what might seem like an unlikely source. We're going to look at the book of Jonah. I invite you to turn there now. Jonah is one of the minor prophets, so to the right of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. The title for this sermon series is Salvation Belongs to the Lord. That comes straight out of Jonah 2, verse 9, and it's also a central theme of the whole book, that the God of Israel, Yahweh, is a God who mercifully rescues. He is the God who saves. Now, as a concept, that is basic Old Testament theology. Theology 101 for any Israelite. But what the book of Jonah does is it takes this basic concept. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God is a God who mercifully rescues. It takes that concept and it shows it in action in surprising ways. And it challenges us to ask, do we really believe it? The book of Jonah forces us to evaluate how much, how deeply has God's saving mercy actually changed the kind of people we are. So Jonah is a story told in two acts. Act 1 is chapters 1 and 2. Act 2 is chapters 3 and 4. And today we're going to look at Act 1. So we'll be covering the first two chapters of Jonah together. And when we look at Act 1, chapters 1 and 2, we see that it really breaks down into two scenes. Scene 1 shows us Jonah on the run. And then scene 2 shows us Jonah in the fish. Jonah on the run, scene 1. Jonah in the fish, scene 2. So let's start with scene one. This is Jonah on the run. We find this scene from verses one, 
verse 1 all the way to verse 16. So the bulk of chapter 1. Follow along as I read this for us. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and they cried out, each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this? That you have done. For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. We'll stop there for now. This is Jonah on the run. This is the first opening scene of this strange, surprising story. Look at verse 1. It begins in a normal enough way, it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, we know from 2 Kings 14 that Jonah was a prophet. So the word of the Lord coming to a prophet is not unexpected. But from this point on in the story, almost everything that happens is exactly the opposite of what you would expect. And it starts in verse 2. 
This is what God wants him to do. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, this was not something that prophets did. Nineveh was the capital city of a foreign power, Assyria. Now, in Jonah's time, uh, prophets preached to Israelites in Israel. Uh, Later, there will be prophets who minister in Babylon because they're in exile with a bunch of other people from Israel. But Jonah is different. Jonah is actually called to go by himself, apart from any kind of exile of God's people, and go to a foreign capital and preach to them. This is unusual. So is Jonah's response in verse 3. Jonah rose not to go to Nineveh, but to flee to Tarshish. Now, we don't know exactly where Tarshish was, but from everything we can tell, it was far, 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 I should point this way, to the west, to your west. So uh, Nineveh is, the the, the remnants, the remains of Nineveh are in modern-day Iraq. So that's east, east of Israel. Jonah doesn't just stay put. He doesn't just go to the coast. He gets on a boat to go to the other side of the known world, as far away from Nineveh as you can get. And notice what else he's trying to get away from. In verse 3, he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So this is quite a setup for a story. We have a prophet of God fleeing God's presence, God's word, and God's mission. And that's how the story starts. Now the immediate question becomes, why? Why such a strong, defiant, rebellious response from a prophet of the Lord. Well, the rest of the story is going to help show us why, but the original readers of Jonah would have immediately picked up on one big reason, and it has to do with what Nineveh would have represented to an Israelite. So Nineveh, again, capital of Assyria. So the the empire of Assyria was no friend to Israel. This will be the the nation uh, years after Jonah that destroys the northern kingdom of Israel, decimates it. Uh, So not only are they a threat to Israel, though, they were infamous for their barbaric, savage brutality, in particular to the people groups that they conquered. One Old Testament scholar has said, you could consider Assyria to be a terrorist state. So when you hear Nineveh, think Berlin under the Nazis. Think Moscow under Joseph Stalin. The the Ninevites and the Assyrians more broadly were religiously opposed to Israel. They rejected Yahweh. Ethnically, they were different. And politically, they were a threat. So it's not hard to imagine Jonah getting this call and thinking, that is the last place on earth I want to go. Those are the last people on the planet I would want to bring God's word to. So that's the setting for our story, for our opening scene, verses 1 through 3. In verse 4, 
the real action begins. Because it turns out, despite Jonah's best efforts, the God of Israel cannot be contained to the land of Israel. Look at verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The showdown begins. Yahweh against his rogue prophet. But then something interesting happens, starting in verse 5. Surprising, unexpected characters come onto the scene. We start to hear from, in their own words, the Gentile captain and crew of this ship. Look at verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and they each cried out to his God, not Israelites, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. They're desperate to survive. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain, lain down and was fast asleep. Verse 6, so the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? What are you doing? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, as a, a reader, you want to ask why this detail? Why would the story slow down? If this is between God and Jonah, why slow the narrative down to give us the perspective of these unnamed Gentile mariners? Well, what we're going to see is that the interactions between Jonah and these sailors will show us something very significant about Jonah and about Gentiles, non-Israelites. What begins to emerge already in verse 5 is that Jonah does not care about them at all. So did you see the contrast in verses 5 and 6? They are scrambling, desperate to not die. And uh, Jonah is sleeping. He has to be roused and told, start praying. And even then, even when the captain calls him out on his total indifference to their ordeal, Jonah says nothing about who he is or what's going on. Nothing. It's not until verses 7 and 8 when they cast lots and Jonah is singled out and they corner him and ask him, what is the deal? It's only then that Jonah says anything about what's going on. So the picture that is emerging is Gentiles who, not surprisingly, don't want to perish, are desperate, are frantic to live. And in contrast, God's prophet, totally unmoved, totally not bothered, by whether the Gentiles live or die. It gets even more interesting. So verse 11, they figured out it's him. He's told them that that he fears Yahweh. He's a follower of the God of Israel who actually is the God of everything, which freaked them out. And so now they say, what do we need to do? What should we do to you? Now stop. We've all heard this story so many times, but think about What should Jonah have said? We know from verse 2 what Jonah should have said. He should have said, 
turn the ship around, take me back to Joppa, I've got to go to Nineveh. But what does he say? Verse 12, he said, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now he has one thing right. The, the storm is between Jonah and Yahweh. So he, he gets that much. But do you, do you realize what this means? What he says in verse 12? He is saying he would rather die than go to Nineveh. He would rather drown in the ocean than take God's word to the Assyrian capital. That is how intense his disdain is for the Ninevites. Now, you would expect, as an Israelite reader, you would expect immoral, godless pagans to have no problem with this, to go, oh, okay, throw you over? Sure, we don't care. But look what they do. Look at verse 13. The men rode hard to get back to dry land. They tried to save Jonah's life, the same Jonah who didn't care at all about them. Nothing happens in this story like you would expect. But the storm intensified. They weren't able to make any progress, and so they give in. They ask God for mercy for what they're about to do, and they throw Jonah over. Now, it's at this point, as scene one comes to a close, that two incredible things happen. The first incredible thing is in verse 15. The storm does, in fact, stop immediately. Now, Jonah said this would happen, but it must have been incredible nonetheless. He goes under the water, and the storm stops. The second incredible thing, perhaps even more incredible than that, is in verse 16. Look at verse 16 again. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, you might read that and think that this is just a passing moment of gratitude But the Old Testament, when it talks about the fear of the Lord, that is one of the Old Testament's favorite ways to describe authentic, vibrant faith in Yahweh. So what it appears happened is they were converted. And this is further supported by what they do. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord. They made vows. Those were the kinds of things faithful, devout Israelites would have done. So, although brief, verse 16 seems to be showing us the sailors all got saved. They turned to the Lord. They feared the Lord exceedingly. So, here's how scene one ends. You have the Israelite prophet of God stubbornly sinking to his death. And on the surface, you have pagan Gentiles getting saved in spite of the prophet who didn't care about them. Incredible. So what's the picture of Jonah that that we're getting from this opening scene? Well, it's this, that Jonah is not interested in God's mercy extending to those outside Israel. Jonah is not interested in God's mercy extending out to outsiders. I mean, he's, he's 
absolutely dead set against God's mercy going to Nineveh. That much has been made very clear. But even these like innocent bystanders, these sailors, he doesn't care. He's totally indifferent to them. So Jonah is not interested in God's mercy going out, extending out to outsiders. That's scene one. That's Jonah on the run. That brings us to scene two. This is perhaps the most famous part of the story. This is Jonah in the fish. This begins in verse 17 of chapter 1 and goes to the end of chapter 2. Let's read this scene together, starting in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is Jonah in the fish. So verse 17, yet another unexpected, surprising, and strange turn of events. Just when we thought Jonah would be finished, drowned in his own stubbornness, God intervenes. God sends a great fish that swallows him, preventing him from drowning, and miraculously keeps him alive for three days and three nights. Now, it's at this point that many people are ready to dismiss Jonah as a fable and to say, well, obviously this didn't really happen. This is clearly some kind of myth or legend or fairy tale. But really, this isn't that hard for God to do if there's a God. I mean, as soon as you're willing to grant the possibility that there is a God who exists outside and independent of the system of our physical world, then it's really not out of the question for a God like that to disrupt, interrupt, suspend what we would expect to be the normal operations of the system to accomplish his will. But interestingly, 
the author of this book does not dwell on the event itself of Jonah being swallowed. What the author dwells on, what the bulk of scene two is taken up with, is what Jonah says inside the fish. And just like scene one, scene two is going to reveal something about this strange, rogue prophet. Here's the structure of the prayer. In verse 2, we have a summary statement. Jonah says, I called out, and he answered me. I cried, and you heard my voice. That, that really captures what the whole prayer is about. In verses 3 through 7, Jonah recounts in very poetic language his uh, distress and his deliverance. So at 3 through 7, we see this uh, poetic, vivid picture of what Jonah went through and how God intervened to pluck him out of it. And then the prayer ends in verses 8 and 9 with an expression of Jonah's response, his resolve to respond to God's deliverance with thanksgiving, with uh, sacrifices, and with keeping of vows. Now here's what's so interesting about this. Uh, This probably sounded familiar to you because it's similar to many psalms. And if, like a psalm, we had this prayer by itself, we would say, everything checks out. It's a good prayer. It's theologically sound from beginning to end. And that's true. But when we read this prayer in the context of the story things start to look a little different. When you read Jonah 2, in light of Jonah 1, almost every part of this prayer begins to look problematic. Here's what we see. Well, first, here's what we don't see. Jonah never confesses his sin. Not once in this prayer does he say anything about the fact that he was wrong, that he defied God, that he ran away, that he hated the Ninevites. Nothing. Not a whisper of confession or repentance. That is a glaring omission, given what we saw in chapter 1. Second, we see Jonah appearing to blame God. Look at verse 3. For You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Now, that's true in the sense that God, being providentially in control of everything, did orchestrate everything that happened. But it does sound suspiciously like a failure to take responsibility. If, if our memory serves us correctly, wasn't it Jonah who said, hurl me into the sea? And then third, notice what Jonah says in verse 8. Couldn't resist getting a little dig in against Gentiles. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now, again, taken at face value, that is a true statement. But the irony is hard to miss because at this very moment, what's happening with the uh, 
formerly idol-worshiping sailors. They're up in the boat worshiping Yahweh. And where's the pious, devout prophet of Israel? He's stuck in a fish. It starts to look like verse 8 might be pious language cloaking Jonah's disdain for Gentiles. But here's the other interesting thing about this song, this prayer. Jonah does seem to be genuinely grateful that he didn't die, which is not hard to understand, right? If you're drowning in the ocean and then you found yourself not drowning and you believed in God, it would be hard not to feel very grateful. And that's right. But isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting how deeply moved Jonah is when he is the one being delivered. The same prophet who was not interested in God's mercy extending to outsiders in chapter 1 is celebrating God's mercy when it is for him. The same prophet who didn't care about whether Gentiles perished or survived is moved to poetic verse when he is delivered. So what do we see about Jonah here? Jonah celebrates God's mercy when it's for him. Which makes you wonder, why didn't God just let him drown? What is the deal with this prophet? Look at verse 10, though. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And we'll hear next week how Act 2 picks up right where Act 1 began. We're going to try this again. So what it seems like is happening in verse 10 is not that Jonah was delivered because of his piety or devotion or the vibrancy of his prayer life. It seems like Jonah was rescued because God's not done with Jonah yet. Which means, by extension, God is not done with us yet, the readers of this strange and surprising book. So we've looked at scene one and scene two. The prophet who was not interested in God's mercy extending to outsiders is the same prophet who celebrates God's mercy when it's for him. What are we supposed to do with this? What what is this teaching us? Jonah 1 and 2 is teaching us that God's mercy extends farther than we are comfortable with. But it also has the power to help us catch up. God's mercy, by its very nature, goes farther than we wish it would, but at the same time, it has the power to help us catch up. So this is the spiritual renewal question that Jonah places before us. To what extent do our attitudes and thoughts and actions reflect, conform to, align with God's mercy. It's worth 
pausing here to just define what, what is God's mercy? Uh, God's mercy is his compassion for people in trouble that moves him to rescue them. God's mercy is really what the captain inarticulately cried out for in verse 6. When the captain says, perhaps the God will give a thought to us. That is compassion. Compassion is when God gives a thought to us. He cares about us. He does something about our suffering, our bondage. Now, why was Jonah so uncomfortable with this particular extension of God's mercy? Well, remember, the Ninevites were religiously opposed, they were ethnically different, and they were politically threatening to Israel. Now, you don't have to think for very long to fill out each of those categories with people, individuals, groups, nations that we know about. People who reject the God that we worship. People who belong to an ethnic group other than the one that we belong to. People who are threatening to us. So how might, how might God's extending mercy to outsiders change us? Or to put it a different way, how could we catch up to God's uncomfortable mercy with outsiders like the ones Jonah was called to? Well, let's think about those that religiously reject our beliefs. To catch up with God's mercy means that we proclaim the truth about God anyway. The, the word for this is evangelism, to, to share good news. On this side of the cross, evangelism always includes the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which the New Testament says is the only way to be made right with God. Now, evangelism as an act of mercy is not very popular in our culture. It's actually quite offensive to many people. The idea that you would tell other people that they believe wrongly. But Jonah shows us how, how empty and hollow that really is. You see, Jonah didn't go to Nineveh to say, you guys worship idols and you do human sacrifices, we worship Yahweh, and it's okay. We're all going to the same place, aren't we? No, Jonah went to Nineveh with a word of warning because the Ninevites were going the wrong way. This idea that all religions are equally valid, it only makes sense if religion is a pretend thing. But if we are dealing with reality, then that changes everything. If the God of the Bible is real, and Jesus of Nazareth really is the only way to be made right with God, then it would be cruel not to tell people. It would be the opposite of compassion to say, you're fine. We're, all, we're good. Just keep doing what you're doing. To catch up with God's mercy for people who reject God means that we graciously and compassionately proclaim the truth even to those who reject him in the hopes that they might turn. What about those 
who are ethnically different from us. I think Jonah 1 and 2 shows us that we, we catch up to God's mercy by acknowledging the shared humanity of people who look different from us and then acting on that with practices of compassion and justice. Did you, did you notice how human the sailors become in chapter 1? I mean, you can't read the things that they say and not recognize they are every bit as human as Jonah is, as you and I are. Now, <clears throat> unlike evangelism, recognizing uh, ethnic or racial equality is very popular in our day, at least in theory. But I wonder, I wonder if we perhaps pat ourselves on the back too quickly because we're not blatantly racist. So racism. When people use the word racism, what we typically mean, what most people mean, is a belief in the supremacy of your own race and corresponding to that, conscious, active animosity towards people who are different. But remember, Jonah disdained Gentiles in two different ways. He did, by all appearances, actively disdain Ninevites. I think it's safe to say he hated them. But with the sailors, it was different. Jonah was merely indifferent to their suffering. He didn't care. At the beginning, he didn't even see their suffering because he was sleeping. So I think for us in the 21st century, although we shouldn't assume that the subtleties of prejudice are not something that we can succumb to. Acknowledging that, I would say the greater danger is the second thing that Jonah did. Indifference towards the suffering of those who are different from you. Let me give you just one example. Uh, For decades now, the unemployment rate among African Americans has held at roughly double whatever the unemployment rate happens to be at that time for white people. That's true in recessions. That's true in strong labor markets like the one we're in. Now, thankfully, there's evidence that that's narrowing a bit, but the gap is still there. It's a stubborn, obviously unfair gap. Now, clearly, when we get to racial discrepancies in the realm of of economics, it's complicated. There's a long history. And people of good faith can disagree on what the best solutions are. But here's the question I think Jonah would, would pose to us. Do we see and do we care? Because the reality is one of the luxuries of being middle class and up in 21st century America is you can arrange every part of your life in such a way that you are insulated from other people's hardships. You can buy a house and go to work and go to church largely with people from your ethnic group 
and your tax bracket. And I'm not here to say that's inherently evil and we should all feel bad for that. But it does raise the issue, do we see and do we care? Do the hardships of other people's zip codes bother us? Do the the struggles of other groups of people weigh on us at all? And are we willing to do something about it? The Ninevites were also uh, politically a threat to Israel. So what would it look like to catch up with God's mercy for people who are threatening to us? Well, Jesus said it best, we love our enemies and we entrust our safety to God. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's not the case that Christians are not allowed to protect themselves or take precautions. We don't uh, have to be reckless. But even where wise precautions for our own safety are necessary, being people of God's mercy should affect our attitude, our, our inner world, when we think about people who are threatening to us. In 2004, in Amsterdam, a Muslim man murdered a Dutch filmmaker. And he admitted it. And he said in court he did it because the filmmaker made a movie that was critical of Islam. And this uh, set off a wave of violence in the Netherlands. Mosques were attacked and burned. Churches were attacked and burned. And against this backdrop, a pastor went to his local mosque, knocked on the door, and told them, that he was going to stand guard every night until the violence stopped. Now, here's the thing. This was not a liberal, mainline, we're all going to the same place kind of pastor. This was a Bible-believing Christian who firmly believed that Islam was a false religion. An author spoke to this pastor, and, and this is how he describes what motivated him. This pastor was not inspired by modern dogmas of liberty, equality, or fraternity, multicultural appeals for a celebration of difference had little pull on his heart. When I pressed him to explain his actions, to give some account for why he would defend a religion he deeply disliked, Sabrandi, the pastor, simply replied, Jesus, Jesus commanded me to love my neighbor my enemy, too. You see, God's mercy is not just a comfort to us. It is that. It's a, it's a calling. It goes farther than we're comfortable with, but it has the power to help us catch up. Now, the point is not to just feel bad and try harder. The hope of the gospel is that God himself will change us. And we see that God gives us pathways, ways of pursuing his transforming power. So what, what are the pathways to growing in this area of, of being people of mercy? Let me give you two very briefly, and they go together. Pathway number one to being renewed in line with God's mercy is to just take a concrete step in the direction of mercy and see how God might use that 
to renew your heart, renew your own appreciation for his mercy. John Piper described this really well in the area of evangelism. John Piper asked his dad one time, what's the one thing, dad, you would say to Christians on how to fight for joy? And his dad, without any hesitation, said, share your faith. And Piper explains it this way, not to speak of Christ to unbelievers and not to care about our city or the unreached peoples of the world is so contradictory to Christ's worth, people's plight, and our joy that it sends the quiet message to our souls day after day, this Savior and this salvation do not mean to you what you say they do. So there, there is a connection between our practices and our soul. When we do acts of mercy, when you share the gospel with that coworker or invite that family over for dinner or volunteer, you're not just being a do-gooder. You are communicating to your own soul, God's mercy is real. It is precious. So that's the first pathway. The second pathway is the same two things, just in reverse. We grow in being people of mercy by reminding ourselves of God's mercy for us. If you think that you are the kind of person who does not need mercy, you're not going to be merciful. The book of Jonah exists in part to show us God's mercy so that we could behold it and remember that we need it and to let that change us to become compassionate, merciful people. Jesus, uh, many, many years after this, was asked for a sign, proof to back up what he was claiming for himself. And he said, in this particular case, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. The Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. They didn't understand what he was talking about. But what Jesus was showing is that even unbeknownst to the prophet Jonah, in his foolishness and stubbornness, he was creating a pattern that the Messiah would fulfill. That Jesus who in that same conversation said, something greater than Jonah is here now. Jesus is a greater Jonah. Jesus stood in for us. Jesus took the storm of God's wrath so that it would quiet down for us. Jesus descended into the depths, not of the ocean, but of death and hell itself, and emerged on the other side victorious. And what's more, Jesus did this, not like Jonah, but fully aware of what he was doing. Not just fully aware, but full of love and compassion for us. You see, Jonah, as well as the entire Old Testament, is pointing forward again and again to the greatest act of mercy that has ever been done, which is the death of God the Son in the place of sinners so that we could be saved. One thing we can do is to remember we are the kind of people that need that much mercy. Let's pray.
Father, we confess again our need for your compassion. Have mercy on us, sinners that we are. Have mercy on us to pardon and also to transform, that we might begin to embody more clearly your stunning compassion. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand for the benediction? May the God of all mercy refresh your soul by his spirit this week with fresh experiences and insights into his mercy in Jesus. And may he send you powerfully out into the world to show that mercy to others. Go in peace.